One of us is an optimist, and the other a realist. One is intuitive, and the other one likes to plan. One of us likes details, and another likes to look at the whole picture. One of us is very black and white, you know, either or, and the other sees shades of gray. One of us grew up Christian, and the other grew up Jewish. But we are one flesh, united in purpose, united in values, united in our journey permanently. Of course, I'm talking about my wife, my marriage to her, my, my, my wife, Sonia. Yeah, that's a clap. All right. You know, it's an amazing thing combining two people into one life. Uh, those of you who are married, you, you know about this. It's an awesome challenge. It's a beautiful, messy journey. And above all, it reflects God's relationship with us, and it brings him glory. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, combining two major world religions into one. Like, um, I don't know, Judaism and Christianity. You know, these, these two weren't always separate. They started out as one Jewish Yeshua faith. But then they split around the year 400, which is a little bit later than, than, uh, than we used to think. Um, but they did split. And we, we here at Tikvat Israel, we're trying to bring them back together. So the question is, what are we doing here at Tikvat Israel? Why is it important to keep and establish a Jewish Yeshua faith? Why would we willingly face rejection from many Jews and Christians who think that this is mishigas at best and deceptive at the worst? Why should we keep the feasts and use a difficult language like Hebrew in our liturgy that, you know, most people probably don't even understand. Why even have liturgy? Why, why should we strive to be different, to be distinct, to be unique among all the synagogues, unique among all the churches? Why should we keep trying to combine Yeshua with Judaism? Why should we proclaim Yeshua within a community that largely rejects him? Why Messianic Judaism? I'm sure many of the prophets of old asked themselves similar questions because they were asked to do some pretty ridiculous things. For example, Hosea. Do you know the story of Hosea? He was told to marry a prostitute as an object lesson for how God constantly reached out to Israel, and yet Israel was not faithful to him. I'm sure this was a pretty frustrating marriage at times. Ezekiel was directed by God like this in Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This is what God says, if we have it up. Yes, thank you, Robert. He says, then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin Remember that phrase, bear their sin. For the number of days you lie on your side, 
I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. And after you finish this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Imagine that. So over a year, I'm going to take this off. Over a year, so 390 days, <laughs> like this. Oh, I lost my keeper. And then make sure everyone can see over here. And then 40 more days, like this. Can you imagine it? I'm acting, well, if you want to act it out, if you have enough room in your benches, yeah, please try to act it out. This is the, called kinesthetic learning. I'll uh, uh, put my uh, talus on while you try it. Juan, how did that feel? Felt pretty good. Well, maybe for the first couple minutes, right? You know, not so good for, for over a year, all right? And this is all to experience in his body, right? What, um, what Israel, the, the poor choices and the uh, idolatry of the nation of Israel, right? Notice that the text also says that he should bear the sin of the people of Israel. And the word for sin in this, in this verse is avon. And this is also the word for iniquity or guilt for iniquity, as in the famous uh, suffering ser servant passage, Isaiah 53, where it says that um, he, uh, the Messiah was bruised for our iniquities, for our avon. It's the same word. Do you imagine that Ezekiel was bruised for the iniquities of Israel from lying on one side for so long? I do. This is one of the roles of the prophet, to act out in their life the suffering and the reality of the life of Israel. The prophet represents Israel with their very life, with their very body. This also, of course, is one of the primary works of Messiah Yeshua. Though he is more than a prophet, he still plays this role for Israel, acting out in his life their struggles. For example, Israel struggles in the desert for 40 years. Yeshua fasts in the desert for 40 days. Israel goes through the Red Sea. Yeshua is immersed in the Jordan. With his very body, he bore the iniquities of Israel, indeed, of all nations, suffering for us, living out the pain of sin for us, dying for us so that we might live. And none of this seems very fair, does it? Why should Hosea have to marry an unfaithful woman? Why should Ezekiel not be able to turn over or stand up? Why should a man who knew no sin take the punishment that we deserved? Because this is the role of the prophet. And I believe, it's my conviction, that the Messianic Jewish community has a parallel role in a sense like a prophet. When we do liturgy, when we did that this morning, when we celebrate the feasts, when we read from the Torah, when we keep the Jewish traditions like wearing the kippah and the talus, 
that I have here. We are enacting with our bodies, with ourselves, the life of Israel. We are identifying with her as part of Israel, as the remnant of Israel that follows Yeshua. As Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles who have joined us, we are part of the nation of Israel, and we are living out her calling. The Gentile wing is the representative of Yeshua among all the nations. And the Messianic Jews are the representative of Yeshua among Israel. If there was no Messianic Jewish movement, there would be no one to represent Israel who follows the Lord. The Messianic Jewish movement is a movement of God to preserve a righteous Yeshua faith in Israel. Our movement prophetically lives out the life of Israel to represent her to God, to intercede for her, at times even to suffer for her. If we are indeed disciples of Yeshua, we must do as he did. Yeshua was called to die literally for Israel, and we are called to die figuratively. That is, we must give our lives and our bodies wholly over to Hashem, for we are his. We belong to him because he loves us. Those who are called to our community by God are called to walk with the Jewish people as a whole and to live out a sacrificial life for their sake, motivated by God's love for us and to bring God the glory we can fulfill our prophetic calling. And this brings us to the second aspect of the life of a prophet, living in the margins. You see, the life of a prophet is not widely understood or accepted. We should not always expect to be understood or accepted in the world. Think of Elijah. He was feeling alone among those who had not worshipped the foreign god Baal. He's running away from the evil queen Jezebel. And Hashem asks him, what are you doing? And Elijah says this in 1 Kings 19, verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then Hashem reassures him that God has preserved 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal, who are faithful to God. Hashem encourages him to say that, in fact, he is not alone. And moreover, he encourages Elijah by his still, small voice in this passage, that he is always with him. But we can imagine how Elijah felt. He felt alone. Even the great Elijah, he felt alone as the righteous part of the nation of Israel, though he's not totally alone. Do you think that the rest of Israel understood why Ezekiel had to lie down on one side? Do you think that the rest of Israel understood why Yeshua had to live out the life of Israel? Even John the Immerser does not understand Yeshua's immersion in the Jordan, right? which we have seen, this signifies his identity with the story of Israel, and even John doesn't get it. 
This is uh, what we find in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. This is what it says. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, no, no, no. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Yeshua replied, let it be now so, or so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. A prophet is not universally understood or accepted and embraced by the world, and that's okay. A prophet often works from the margins, relates to the marginalized and downtrodden. The prophets in the Tanakh regularly ministered to widows, to those who were forgotten or ignored by society. And in turn, a prophet's words were sometimes ignored. They were marginal figures helping the marginalized. Of course, as the ultimate prophet in all of Israel, Yeshua follows the same pattern. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, this is the exchange between Yeshua and some Pharisees. While Yeshua was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, those are, were the, the marginal people of this time, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he meet with the marginal on hearing this, Yeshua said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Yeshua regularly met with the marginal and the outcasts, thus associating himself with them and becoming marginal himself. He humbled himself to meet with the humble. And amazingly, this marginal tactic of the prophet, it works to affect the greater good of the whole community. God's kingdom goes from the outside in. Consider the nation of Israel, chosen to represent God's values. A nation of stubborn, stiff-necked people. And yet, the knowledge of God spreads from Israel to all the nations, despite her faults. Consider the apostles, Yeshua's 12 Talmidim. These were not revered, distinguished men. They were ragtag students who took forever to understand a point. And they argued among themselves about who was better. And from this group, the gospel spread throughout Israel. Consider Rabbi Shaul, or the Apostle Paul, who described himself as the chief among sinners, the worst. Paul said he was the worst. From this weak murderer came the spread of the story of Yeshua to nations upon nations, so that today the gospel has gone to every nation. God uses the weak and marginalized to affect the strong, for his glory, and by his loving hand. And then you have our little community, the Messianic Jewish movement, on the margins of Judaism, on the margins of Christianity. How can we possibly affect these communities for good? 
No, that's not the right question. How can we possibly not affect them for good? This is God's economy. If we are rejected, then praise Hashem, for Israel always rejects the prophets. If we are misunderstood or unwanted, praise Hashem, for we can seek to understand and love those that misunderstand or don't love us. If we embrace our marginal role, we can thank God for it and seek to walk in it as Hashem leads. So we have seen that a prophetic life is one that lives out the life of Israel to identify with her as a Yeshua faith movement, our Yeshua faith remnant. And the prophetic life is one on the outskirts, affecting Israel and the nations for good from the outside. And there is a third aspect of the life of the prophet that I want to discuss. By living out the life of Israel in their life and by living in the margin, the prophet ushers in the world to come. Ha'olam haba, the kingdom of heaven. When Elijah provided for a widow, do you remember the story? He provided for her. She had nothing left, and uh, she only had a little bit of grain, a little bit of oil, and he provided for her that she wouldn't die during the drought. And then, uh, and then her son died, and then Elijah raised him from the dead. What was he doing there? He was pushing forward toward the kingdom of Messiah, when Yeshua would do the same things. And he was pushing forward toward the resurrection and the redemption and healing of all life. When Elijah brought judgment on all the false prophets of Baal, do you remember this story? So that he gathered them on Mount Carmel, and, they, and he asked the, the prophets of Baal, the false god, to um, bring fire on their uh, offering. And they were unable to do it. And they cried out all day and they cut themselves and they shouted and they couldn't do it. He brought judgment on all the false prophets. He was pushing forward the final judgment on all evil and idolatry and the salvation of those who trust in the God of Israel. When Yeshua healed the sick, when he cast out demons and taught the true meaning of Torah, he was pushing forward the kingdom of heaven onto earth toward the fullness of God's love and God's power and God's glory. Every Shabbat, we stand, we cover our eyes, and we say this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod, Malchuto, Leolam Vaed, Yeshua, Hu Hamashiach, Hu Adon Ha. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom for all eternity. Yeshua, he is the Messiah, he is Lord of all. There is a sense in which these things are all true. And there is a sense in which these things are not yet 
What do I mean? Yes, the Lord is one. Yes, his kingdom is glorified forever. Yes, Yeshua is Messiah and Lord of all. But none of these things are complete in this world. God's name is not fully one yet, unified, because on that day, when his name is one, he will fill all in all. He will be fully glorified in his power and authority. His glory will someday fill the earth, but today there is still injustice. Yeshua is indeed Lord of all, but as of today, he has not returned to take up his authority on his throne in Jerusalem to rule and to reign. Yeshua may be Lord of our hearts, but not everyone's yet. Every knee has not yet bowed, nor every tongue confessed that Yeshua is Lord, but they all will someday. And the prophet's job, our job, is to usher forth that vision, the kingdom of heaven, until those things are all true on the earth as much as they are true in heaven. We bring that someday into today by the things that we do. The prophet ushers in the olam haba, the world to come, by acting out his calling. When we celebrate Purim in two months, we're not only proclaiming what happened, but proclaiming what will happen. God's salvation of his people from evil, we are ushering it in. When we proclaim the story of Esther and Mordecai, we're pressing forward toward his salvation and his faithfulness. In April, when we celebrate Passover, we're proclaiming not only did God spare Israel by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, not only did God spare his children by the blood of Yeshua, but that God will save us through Yeshua, and he's doing so even now. Passover means that God has saved us completely and yet also is saving us and will save us. Is it easy combining two major world religions into one thing when they've spent 1,600 years apart? No. But it's also not easy taking a man with a bachelor mentality and teaching him to communicate and share life with an amazing woman. Messianic Judaism is not easy, but I strongly believe that it is a move of God on this earth, and it is worth it. Let us press forward in our calling and not shrink back. Instead of fearing, instead of being afraid of our marginality, let's embrace it. How can we embrace it? How can we proclaim our Yeshua faith in a way that is effective and respectful? Let's follow the advice of Peter as he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This is what he says. Let's read it together. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, Revere Messiah as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's the whole thing. 
In other words, we should give a response to those who ask us about why we have hope in this world to share the story of Yeshua and how that story collides with the story of God and Israel. We should revere Messiah in our hearts so as not to be afraid of rejection. We should be prepared in all seasons to give our reason, but always with gentleness and humility. And as we fulfill our calling as a Messianic Jewish community, I believe that God will bring forth his heavenly kingdom on earth. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's pray.